Let's open our Bibles to the book of Judges one last time on a Sunday morning. We will be in chapter 21 on Wednesday night to completely finish out the book in that verse-by-verse study. But this morning, chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse of the book. Actually, I'm going to go back. You can put your finger in there, but I'm going to read beginning in chapter 17, verse 6. For the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1 repeats it, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1 says, Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. And then finally at the end of the book, chapter 21, verse 25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Father in heaven, we proclaim and declare this morning that you are our king. And Lord, I pray that you will have authority over this study. That you will take the lead in our understanding and our teaching. That you will draw our minds to you, Father, but our hearts as well. That we could truly and rightly declare your Lordship over our lives. Holy Spirit, we rely on you every time we open your word, Father. We rely on you, Lord Jesus, to speak clearly, to show us truth, and to help us stand on that foundation of truth that you have given us. And we thank you. Father, we thank you for being a truthful God and not a duplicitous God. We thank you for being a Lord who is faithful and not tricky. We thank you, as Jim shared, Father, that you are a God who paid it all, and not one who demands payment that we cannot give. We rest in Jesus this morning. We praise you, Jesus, and acknowledge your authority, even praying in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. To the end of another book. Something I said three months ago, and I hope you've experienced it as I have, the book of Judges delivers. This is a great book, a book of deliverance, detailing the deliverers in Israel, the judges. That that word means overseers, it means deliverers as well. Not just those who rule in in black cloaks from behind a, a big podium, stomping down their gavel. This is a great book of storytelling fare. Some of the best Sunday school stories told over the, the last decades have come directly out of the book of Judges. It reminds me, and in fact it fits perfectly, the line from the old Rich Mullins song, song's called Boy Like You, Man Like Me, where he sings, Stories like that make a boy grow bold. Stories like that make a man walk straight. Something I've told a few of the teachers in our children's ministry and we've talked about is that that is what you are about. That's, that's what we want in our children's ministry. Teach them the stories. Let them hear about these stories. Let the children see what happened and the decisions and choices these people made. Let them know the stories. And they will grow strong in the Lord. We heard about 13 different people 
Perhaps you remember the list. The first was Othniel. He was the one who married Caleb's daughter, Oxa. And Othniel was the man who was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. I'm sure you remember Ehud, the left-handed Benjamite who thrust his sword into the belly of Eglon. And the stuff came out. One of my favorite stories. And Shamgar, who used what he had in his hands. He was a farmer. He had oxen, and so he beat back. He destroyed, he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Similar to a cattle prod. Then the fourth judge to come along was Deborah. The only woman among the group of men. And what's interesting about Deborah is though her uh, leadership routed Sisera's army at Mount Tabor... Deborah said, I'm just a mom. I'm a mom in Israel. That's, that's my role. That's who I am. Gideon, whose interactions with the Lord are some of the most personal in Scripture. You read through Gideon's story. Fantastic how he just talked to the Lord. We, we talk about today a lot about a personal relationship with Jesus. Gideon had one of the most personal relationships with God in the Hebrew Scriptures. Walking with him, talking with him. And, and it wasn't necessarily that he had the right heart always for God, but, but man, he talked to the Lord. He interacted. Gideon's the one who bested the Midianites with the weaponry of a ram's horn, the shofar, and some clay pots, and some torches. The power of God behind him. Well, the sixth judge was a man named Abimelech. If you want to call him a judge... Abimelech was the false judge. It's interesting to me, someone pointed this out after the fact, that the sixth judge was Abimelech, that he was the false judge and he was the sixth. And that's interesting because the Bible tells us that six is the number of a man. Six is the number that, that encapsulates mankind. Because seven is the number of completion, six is the number that falls short, doesn't quite get there. Which is why Antichrist is given that number, 666, Revelation 13, 18. The whole point behind that is that he doesn't quite get there. No matter how hard he tries, 666, and you could probably put a little line after the last six, and it would just continue on out. He can never get there, and neither could you, neither could I, except for the precious blood of our Lord Jesus, who makes us complete in God. So Abimelech was number six. Number seven was Tola. You may remember Tola. His name meant worm. His name also meant scarlet. He was that scarlet worm who saved Israel. The next one was a man named Jair. We don't know anything about anything that he did. The Bible tells us nothing. He apparently didn't do a whole lot. Jephthah followed him. A man who knew how to keep his vows. A man of fierce commitment to the Lord. And after Jephthah, we read about Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. Three more. We don't know anything about them. That's why I haven't heard their names much in Sunday school. Because pretty much if you were sitting in a Sunday school class, growing up as a kid, and a teacher said, this morning we're going to talk about Ibsen, that'd be all you'd hear. Class would be over. The 13th and, and most familiar judge is, of course, Samson. Samson, the strong man, mighty in the Lord who you may recall brought the house down literally at the end of his life. And so these, these 13 different people, fascinating stories, interesting, exciting to read. The book of Judges delivers. But the thing it delivers more than anything else, more than the greatness and the excitement in all of these stories, what Judges truly delivers is a picture of agape love. The agape love of God. I tell you that because not only does the book of Judges deliver, but the book of Judges is depressing. 
We read through it time and time again, and back across seven generations, a cycle of judgment and sin. And each time the Lord delivers the people, agape, regardless of what they're doing, in spite of their sin and failure and stupidity, the Lord continues to deliver them. But if you, like me, you read through Judges, you begin to realize it just doesn't ever get better. We talked about early on that, that cycle of judgment that begins with compromise. Compromise. We have another word for that we've been looking at over the last three weeks. Apostasy. The falling away. You're with the Lord, but you begin to compromise in certain ways. Begin to go different directions. Compromise led the people to chase after other gods. Well, I don't chase any gods, Rick. No, but we chase things in this world, don't we? We chase material things. We chase relationships that do compromise our faith. We chase after desires and wants that are not of the Lord. They're of the world. We love the things of the world instead of loving the things of God. Compromise leads us to chase after other gods. Leading the people then, and you and I as well, to be crushed by our enemies. And when crushed by our enemies, that's the point in our lives, isn't it? When we cry out to God. It's not so often in the good times, but in the bad, where we're saying, Lord, I've messed up. I need you. I need your forgiveness. Return me once again. Bring me back in your grace. And He does. He does, because when we cry out to the Lord, He always brings compassionate deliverance. And so after compassionate deliverance, the people come back to the Lord. But the depressing thing about Judges is coming back to the Lord tends to be followed by, as always in this book, followed by compromise. And they compromise again. Seven generations. We get on the carousel of judgment, gang, and it's depressing. And I believe the number one reason for depression in our world is sin. It's sin. It just depresses us. It just stinks. We ask the question, why can't I get off this thing? Why is this the way things have to go with me? Why do I have to have a sin nature at all? Now I was thinking about this and looking over the book of Judges and thinking, how can we close this out and, and grasp what it is? What do you want us to hear, Lord? What is the, the primary thing to hear in the book of Judges? And it took me right back to that theme verse, 17 verse 6, 18 verse 1, 19 verse 1, 21 verse 25. The theme of Judges. I want us to ponder it just a little bit longer this morning. But I need to tell you something first. Cheryl had something in her eye. She first told me about this a couple of weeks ago. She was just she said, "Man, I, I just have something, and it, it's up here somewhere, and I can't, I can't get it out of my eyes. It's driving me nuts." You ever had that happen? Usually, you look in the mirror. There's like a little eyelash or something in there, rock. I don't know. And she looked in her eye and couldn't find anything. Well, this went on day after day. It was a, it was a week. Finally, a week and a half. She decided to go see Dr. Harrison. Dr. De- Devin Harrison, eye doctor extraordinaire, who attends the bridge. He paid me to say that. And she went to see him. And Devin got his, you know, his little things and put them on the forehead. And, and she's looking through. And he's you know, about this close from I was in the room with him, you know, so this was okay. It was appropriate. And he's looking into her eyes. And he's checking. And he says, wow. And I'm thinking, okay, this is it. He's going to find what it is. He says, wow, I, just, I don't see anything in there. Which is not what you want to hear. You want some relief. This thing was irritating her. It was there. She couldn't find it. And I thought, what a perfect picture. Talk about Eastern thinking. What a metaphor for our sin life. 
It's just irritating. It's just kind of there. I don't always see it. I, I can't grasp it. Why is it there? You ever feel that way? Like, like something's wrong in your life or something's wrong in the world. Maybe even your life, your walk with Jesus is, is strong and secure. But there's something wrong with this world. People just don't seem to get it. It takes me one minute of watching the news and I just daily now go, Come on. They just don't get it. The whole global warming thing. Now, I don't care one way or another where you stand on this scientifically. If you are a proponent of global warming, you believe in that, or you think it's all bunk. But you know, and here's the deal. Is God not capable of creating a world that we can live on to sustain us, at least to the point when He's finished with it? That's the issue. And if we truly believe that God is the creator, and that He is the authority, and that He's in charge over this world, I'm not going to worry about global warming. I'm going to drive an SUV, and if someone would give me one, I would drive it. But the author of the book of Judges, he brings us to that point. He explains to us. He helps us understand what it is that we can't quite get our finger on. What we can't see, that irritating thing. When we say, what is it? Why is it like this? The author writes about two primary problems. We're going to look at both of them this morning. Again, verse 25 of chapter 21. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So two things to think about if you, if you take notes, jot down this morning. The first one is visual acuity. Visual acuity. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now we've been talking about this for three weeks. Starting in chapter 17 and seeing what Micah did, what was right in his own eyes, hiring his own personal priest and setting up his own designer religion. And then in chapter 18, we see the tribe, is it Benjamin? No, it's Dan in chapter 18. Sorry, the tribe of Dan in chapter 18 who does what's right in their own eyes. And they say, we're not happy with the land that God's given us. We're going to move up north and take land that we want and wipe out a people who are innocent against us who are not our enemies. We're going to do what's right in our own eyes. Then in chapter 19 and 20, the most horrifying story in Scripture that we talked about Wednesday night, where the whole of Israel is caught up in a sin that is ghastly. Because everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. It seems right. It looks good. It appears best. And it's a prescription for depression. Let me give you some current examples in our culture. The Maryland Board of Education now declares that it's the state's right that supersedes the parents' right over their children. And I quote, The right of parents is not absolute. It must bend to the state's duty to educate its citizens. This is in Maryland. Educate the citizens about what? Well, specifically, that only a positive view of homosexuality can be taught in the classrooms. That's the determination of Maryland's Board of Education. I read that article and I went, thank goodness. Thank goodness it's on the other side of the country. <laughs> and it's not right here at home in Washington State where, where parents in local school districts can determine sex education and the curriculum in their schools. Whoa there, Nellie. In a letter from Washington Senator Val Stevens to parents in Washington State that just came out in this last week. You no longer, quote, have any say regarding sex education for your children. The State Department of Health and Superintendent of Public Instruction have been advised by the Congress to develop school curriculum that will include positive information about homosexual and heterosexual sex and contraception beginning with the fourth grade. This new curriculum will replace all current abstinence programs, which have been, by the way, proven highly successful in Washington, 
And according to this legislation, parents will not be advised of the sex education curriculum or invited to review it ahead of time. Now you can, as a parent, opt your child out of this new sex ed uh, program by presenting your request to the school in writing, provided you find out about it on your own and in time. Provided you're on your toes as a parent. Local school districts have no say in this either. This curriculum is being written in Olympia and sent out to the whole state, and even the local school districts cannot change it. This is the way it must be. Senator Stevens says this state-run plan is coming to a school near you in 2008. And it's a picture of everyone saying it's the right thing. It seems like a good idea. We don't want all these different school districts or all these different parents. I mean, who knows what the parents are teaching their kids at home. We need to make sure they're being taught the right thing. It seems like a, a good idea in our own eyes. It's like something that gets in the eye and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to, to maintain, to deal with it. To get some control over it. Let me give you another example, not of parenting and children, but of marriage and specifically cohabitation. Judges chapter 19 verse 1 says it came about in those days there was no king in Israel and there was a certain Levite, one of the priests, staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. His concubine played the harlot against him and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and was there for a period of four months. As we saw midweek, a concubine is a second class wife and or a live-in. Someone that you're not married to at all, someone you just are living with, you're cohabitating with. And the accuracy of these two verses all the way back over 3,000 years ago in the book of Judges, these two verses reflect what's happening in America today. It's the lifestyle in America today. Let me give you some statistics on couples who live together outside of marriage. Okay, Rick, yeah, well, as a pastor, of course, you're going to be pro-marriage and anti-anything else. All right, I understand that, but just let the statistics speak to you. In the 60s, there were only 439,000 couples living together outside of marriage in the United States. 439,000. And that seems like a lot. But that was in the 60s, before the summer of love. And before that generation grew up and said, hey, we got a better way. No piece of paper is going to keep us married. So let's toss the paper and let's just live together. Let's have free love. And let's see how that experiment turned out. By the year 2000, the number of 439,000 couples living together, that number had risen to 4,736,000 couples living together. You might say, okay, so obviously the experiment worked. More people are doing it. Okay? According to secular research, secular research, not, not spiritual, it's not from like focus on the family or the Family Research Council, secular research tells us 90% of couples living together today say they want to get married someday. Why not do it? The answer is they want to ensure compatibility. I want to live with someone first, see if it works out. If it does, then we'll get married. Jesus said in Matthew 19 verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The leaving comes first and then the being joined. It's not be joined to someone physically, sexually, in a home together, be joined and then decide if you want to leave father and mother and get married. It's leave first and then be joined. There's nothing in the scriptures that supports premarital test drives. Like that old Honda commercial that came out a few years ago. 
where the husband and the wife are going to go look at cars and the husband said, I, I want to go car shopping. Let's go to, I've got several lots mapped out that we're going to go visit. And the wife said, well, are we going to buy a Honda? And, and the husband said, well, yeah. Then why are we doing all this other test driving? Why are we going to these other places? And the issue with marriage is that it has become a test drive. Living with someone is a test drive. I mean, try it out. See if we're compatible. Let me just tell you something. I don't mean to be crude, but physically speaking, God created man and woman compatible. Okay? It's going to work out just fine. Trust me. You don't have to try it out. Live-in couples want to know that they're compatible. So again, how well does that work? How well does the cohabitating idea work? more secular research. There's a 50% higher divorce rate for couples who cohabitate before marriage compared with couples who did not. In other words, if you get together and get married first and live together, you have a 50% better chance of your marriage surviving. Those who cohabit and then get married are two times more likely to be unhappy than those who get married without living together first. Dr. Jan Stetz at the University of Washington reported that, quote, unmarried women living with a man are two times more likely to be victims of domestic violence than those who are in a married relationship. In addition, rules of, uh, rates of depression are three times higher among women who live with a man as compared to married women. Now, one more uh, statistic coming out of the University of Maryland. They say that out of every hundred couples living together, these are the stats, out of every hundred couples who are living together, 40 will break up. 40%. Of the 60 couples who go on to get married, 45 of those will divorce. In other words, only 15% of couples who live together before marriage will actually stay married, and we're not even talking about the statistics of marital bliss. <laughs> we're just talking about whether they stay with the person or not. Now, I don't say this for those of you who have had this experience or have lived with someone in the past. I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. I'm just saying this is the reality of it. This is the truth of it. It doesn't work. It seems right. In fact, honestly, from a human perspective, why wouldn't you live with someone before you're married and see if you get along okay? And, and if you don't, well, then get out the door. Find someone you can get along with. It seems right in the eyes of man. Jesus very clearly says it doesn't work, which is why Bill and Joni Gilmore have been married for 50 years. This is irritating. It's like something stuck in my eye. 1 Corinthians 13.12, Paul says, Now we see in a mirror dimly. Then we will see face to face. Now I, I just know in part. Then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. I'm going to see. I'm going to understand. I'm going to get it. But until then, I have two choices. I can do what's right in my own eyes, or I can do what's right in the Father's eyes. And He sees everything. He sees what's coming in my life. He knows what's best. He's given us the prescription not for depression, but for true joy and happiness and health and holiness in this world. And it's in His Word so that we can see our way clear. There's an interesting story in the New Testament. If you'd like to flip over to the book of John, it parallels this whole concept of eye trouble. John chapter 9. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to go ahead and read, and you find it there and, and catch up with me. John chapter 9, verse 1. It says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. 
And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Because that was their position. That was their understanding at the time. If someone was born like this, someone had to sin. Sin always preceded bad things. Well, Jesus answered, it was neither this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Do you want to see your way clear? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And when he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to this man's eyes. Now now stop for a second. What Jesus is doing here is in essence saying, here's mud in your eye. (laughs) He's spitting on the ground. You've got a blind man. Been blind from birth, no doubt he's been toyed with, made fun of. And I really, I gotta wonder when he hears Jesus, you know, make the spit sound, if he doesn't wince. You know, oh no, someone's gonna, you know. But then the next thing he feels is someone wiping grimy mud into his eyes. Across his eyelids and, and into his eyes, this, this, this mud gets in there. How irritating! Try it this afternoon. Have you ever had mud in your eye? Those little, I mean, you think Cheryl had a problem the other week. It's just the grime and everything in there. And now, this guy's irritated, and he has to do something about it. That's what's worse. This Jesus, this rabbi comes along, puts mud in his eye, and said, Okay, go take care of yourself. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. What? What are you doing? And I think, what are you doing, Jesus? Because we saw him heal blind guys without touching them. In fact, we see him, we'll see in a moment, heal a guy without ever even seeing him. He didn't have to do this. But he sticks mud in this blind man's eye, and now this blind man has to get up and do something about it. He said to him, verse 7, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Watch this, which translated means sent. Literally, sent one. The pool of Siloam means sent one. The one who is sent. And so he went away and washed and he came back seeing. Siloam means sent one. The key to visual acuity is going to the sent one. You got something in your eye you don't understand. It's irritating. It's bothering you. Go to the sent one, Jesus Christ. Get washed and your vision will be restored to you. That's how it works. Or the other option, and it's your choice, you can do this, you can do what's right in your own eyes. But I guarantee you, if you do what's right in your own eyes, it's going to irritate you eventually. It's going to depress you. Every time, let me speak for myself, every time I try to do what I think is best, the results are not good. And I allow each one of you, think about it in your own mind. How have your decisions done for you? I'm talking about decisions that you made without God where you just said, hey, whatever, I'm just going to do my thing. How has that worked out for you? You know, I, I see you smiling. You know how that works. It doesn't work out very well. And it may not work out. It may work at first. But eventually it always ends up messy. Jesus will wash and restore your eyes. But the author of Judges doesn't leave it there. It's not the only eye trouble that is dealt with in this book. There's a larger issue at stake. It's not just visual acuity. It's number two, second and last thing, spiritual authority. It's spiritual authority. In those days there was no king in Israel. And we see a completely different kind of eye trouble, not E-Y-E, but the letter I, eye trouble. I am in charge. I do what I think is best for me, myself, and I, that's eye trouble. 
But it's not an issue of visual, you know, acuity being able to see your way clear. It's an issue of spiritual authority. Turn back from John to Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. This is one of those little nuggets, one of those stories that's just awesome in Scripture. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 5. Which says, when Jesus came to Capernaum, some of you have been there, you remember Capernaum, what that looks like. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home and fearfully tormented. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another one, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this. As he, and he does this. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I have not found this kind of faith. I haven't seen this kind of faith before. Absolutely amazing. Skip down to verse 13. He says to the centurion, Go and it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Jesus didn't even have to go there. Why not? Because the centurion knew something. He recognized something. You military folks among us, you recognize this. You understand it. It's called chain of command. That's what our men and women are trained for in in the military. There is a chain of command. There is someone over you who you respond to. And there is someone over them who they respond to. And what the centurion is saying is, in the chain of command, I don't deserve to have you in my house. I understand how it works with authority. And you have the authority. And all you have to do is say the word. And I know he's going to be healed. This is one of the most powerful healings in all of the Bible. Because it is a healing that takes place without the healer even seeing or looking at the healee. I don't even know if that's a word. But that's what happens here. Jesus just says, he's healed. And without any physical contact whatsoever, boom, the guy is healed. And by the way, if you wonder if healing can happen today without the physical contact of Jesus touching someone, it can. We have proof in the Bible. All the, word, all the Lord has to do is deliver the word and say, be healed. And so Jesus did, and so it happens. And it's an amazing story of authority. I love that line back there in verse 9. I am a man under authority. I'd love a t-shirt that said that. A bumper sticker on my car. I am a man under authority. I am not in charge of my life. There is a king in my life. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is before all things, Paul writes in Colossians 1.17. And in him all things hold together, global warming or not. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And gang, I mentioned before this idea of personal relationship that we see in the life of Gideon. And it's very big in our world today. It really got big in the 70s with the Jesus People Movement. You've got to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I agree, and it's absolutely key. You've got to know Jesus. But somewhere along the line, we have gotten so into the idea of personal relationship, of hanging out and lay back with God and Jesus, my man, that we have forgotten spiritual authority. 
And that is the authority that Jesus Christ has over us. He is King. And without acknowledging the authority of Jesus, I lack any real power in my life. People want to know, how do I get strength to get through the day? Acknowledge the authority of Jesus Christ over you. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, he defines a characteristic of some in the last days. He says, they will be holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. To walk in a personal relationship, hanging out with God, it's a form of godliness. But without the acceptance of the absolute authority of Jesus Christ, it denies the power of Jesus. We need the relationship and we need to be people who are under authority. Ignoring that kingly authority, it denies his power. I don't like what God's doing here. I don't want to be where God has me. Jesus, why can't I have the things I, the way I want them to be? And we battle with God... And not only is my visual acuity strained so that I can't see clearly, but any sense of spiritual authority is absent when I talk like this. And I hear it a lot. I hear it a lot. I sit down with people just this last week. Want to know who? No, I won't tell you. Just this last week I was having a conversation. And the conversation went something like this. I don't like what God's doing in my life right now. I don't believe that he would leave me in this place and then just leave me here to deal. I just, I'm not happy with this. I'm really angry with God right now. And I'm slowly sliding my chair you know, a little further away. And we don't fear God like the Word teaches us to fear God. Oh, I don't mean be afraid of Him and run from Him and, and, and shrink back in terror. But I do mean being under authority develops a respect for Him. It also develops in me an understanding that he knows what he's doing. And I may not like it. Big deal. I may be uncomfortable. Okay. This may be a tough season in your life. All right. What is he doing? That's the question to ask. Not why, but what? What are you doing here, Lord? What do you want me to see? What are you trying to teach me? Help me to learn what you have for me. Instead of battling it out with God. Psalm 2 verse 6. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Psalm 24 8. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Psalm 99 verse 1 says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. There's a good kind of trembling, you know. It happens sometimes in worship where we just get to that place of absolute awe. The dynamics of worship are so amazing. A totally different message for another time, but, but the fact that there are times in worship where I just feel encompassed in the loving arms of my Father and other times in worship where I am trembling at the greatness of who God is. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The strength of the King loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Let me read you one more thing. Over here in John chapter 18. You can turn there or I can just read it to you. John chapter 18 verse 28. This great King, you know... Bible students, he didn't come as a king the first time. 
He shed his robe of kingly authority, of greatness. He came as a suffering servant. And we're told in chapter 18, verse 28 of the book of John, that they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, that is the Jewish leaders, but might eat the Passover. That's amazing to me. They're leading this man into the praetorium. He's beaten up. He's thrashed. They're trying to get him killed, but they don't go in there because they want to make sure they can have lunch that day. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and they said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, We're not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke signifying by what kind of death he was about to die in other words had the Jews put him to death he would have been stoned to death had to be the Romans to do it so that he would be crucified as the Bible tells us Psalm 22 Isaiah 53 tells us he would be verse 33 therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him are you the king are you the king of the Jews Jesus answered are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. By the way, people will use that line and say, See, there's not going to be any millennial kingdom because Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. The word of is ex in the Greek. It's out of. It's derived from. So read that way, you understand it to say, my kingdom is not derived from this world. My kingdom is not going to be built by people in this world. It's not from this world, it's from another place. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from this realm. So Pilate said to him, so, you are a king. And Jesus answered and said, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him tragically, What is truth? What is truth? He didn't get it. Down in verse 16 of chapter 19. It says they handed him over to be crucified. And they took Jesus therefore. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. Which is in Hebrew called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him on either two other men. One on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate also wrote an inscription. And he put it on the cross. Jesus the Nazarene. The king of the Jews. Well, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. What had Pilate written? I love this. On this sign, plastered above Jesus' head, Pilate wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In Hebrew, Yehoshua HaNotsri Vamelech HaYehudim. Great, Rick, you can say that in Hebrew. Well, not well. Trust me, if you ask a Jewish person to say that, it would sound completely different. 
But no wonder the Jewish people wanted the sign changed. No wonder they wanted it torn down off the cross and rephrased. What do you mean? The letters beginning every single word spell out Yahweh. The Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, was above the head of Jesus on the cross when he was crucified. God, the Lord. The Jews saw the sign. They saw those letters. (laughs) That can't be up there. Change the sign. Save this instead. Change it around so we don't see those. Because we don't believe this. And yet the truth of who Jesus is was even mounted above him on the cross. Jehovah, Yahweh, God. Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 10 says the Lord is the true God. He's the living God, the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Gang, the King is coming. And not as a servant to die like He did the first time, but He is coming this second time to rule and to reign with all authority. And our choice is we can be under His authority now, or we will accept and see His authority later. Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. There will be those kneeling in, in awe and respect to his authority. And there will be those driven to their knees in abject fear because they never gave him authority before he came. But he's coming. Zechariah 14 verse 9 says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one. And his name will be the only one. And a note to Christians, I think we would do well to question our king a little less and to bow the knee to him a little more. To accept his authority. I am a man under authority. There is a king in my life. Oh, there was not a king in those days in Israel. That's the problem in the days of the judges, summed up by these two things, visual acuity problems and spiritual authority issues. It was Israel's problem then, it's America's problem and the world's problem now. In these days, there's no king in America. Even the position of the presidency is so undermined, it's incredible. The lack of respect, agree with them or not, is stunning to me. There is an irritation in this country that most people can't find. Most people understand something's not right. You might say, well, great, Rick, it's kind of depressing. That's what the fruit of depression does, or the fruit of doing what's right in your own eyes, or living under your own authority. That fruit is depression, and it's despair, and it's depravity. I need a king over me, the sent one. The God who really sees, who can help me to see clearly. I need a king over me, the coming one. Jesus the Messiah, whose kingdom is not derived from this world, but who is coming back to this world. And my friends, he is coming. He is coming. And his coming is near. Let me ask you a question. When you hear that, what does it do to you? When you hear the king is coming, what does that do to you? How do you respond or react to that sentence? Let me read you something, and I invite you to measure your gut reaction to this. Last verse for this morning, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Just listen to these words, and and listen to your gut and how you respond to these words. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes 
are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How do you react to that? The promise, the guaranteed coming of Jesus Christ back into this world to rule and to reign with absolute authority. What does that do to your heart? Because I'll tell you, the way you respond to it should tell you something about where you are with Jesus. Does it thrill you? Does it excite you? Does it blow your mind to think at any second Jesus himself might call, Come up here and you'll be taken. Do you long for that? Or does it unnerve you to realize that at any second he may show up? This whole idea of the coming of Jesus, is it something you just don't want to think about? Or is the coming of the king something you'd rather just kind of put off a bit because for now you're doing what's right in your own eyes? How you react to the idea of Jesus' return to take his people home will tell you about where you are in this life with Jesus Christ. My prayer is that you will choose today to accept the King and His will and His authority, not as a churchy thing, not as a religious thing, as a relationship that you will enter into today, a relationship with the King. And begin to allow Him to have authority over your life. That you will allow Him to give you the vision to see what He wants you to see and walk and live the way He wants you to walk and live. And what's amazing about God the Father is when I put myself under His authority, the result is not bondage, it's freedom. It is freedom like nothing else. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, Oh God, it is so good to live in Your freedom. And to recognize that in spite of my failings, even when my eyesight is dim, when my selfish nature rears up that I have a king and a father over me a king who has set the standard and declares the truth a father who who so graciously and unconditionally continues continues to draw me in continues to spread his arms around us and Lord this morning I know there are those who need your authority who have been living under their own far too long and it's not working out real well. If that happens to be you as we pray this morning, would you just pray this in your heart to the Lord? In fact, we can all pray this in our hearts to the Lord. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I confess this to you. And I place myself completely and wholly under your authority. You earned the right, Lord. You bought me with your blood on the cross. Taking my place, even expressed on the cross of Calvary, as God in the flesh dying for his people. 
And I believe that you are risen and that you are king. And Lord Jesus, I believe you're coming again. And to that time and on into eternity, I simply say this morning that I accept you as my Lord, my Savior, and my King. In Jesus' name. Amen.